1995, I participated in the International Interfaith Pilgrimage for Peace and Life in commemoration of the end of World War II. The pilgrimage started with a 10-day convocation at Oswiecim, Poland. We offered prayers and meditation at the Birkenau and Auschwitz death camps. We studied and engaged in deep dialogue, and we blessed and broke bread together. On one of the days, a succession of highly esteemed speakers gave teachings about their work for peace, reconciliation, and healing. They were all amazing people doing admirable and courageous work. That said, the talks went on and on. <laughs> the organizers saved the keynote speaker, a Cambodian Buddhist monk, called Mahagosananda to speak last. I'd never heard of the guy. The MC, a beautiful long-haired and activist from California, took the stage and began his introduction. I am honored to invite a great man, a man whose compassion is infinite. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his work organizing the Dharma Yitra. His accomplishments in peace and reconciliation are an inspiration for so many of us. And the guy went on and on and on and on. I looked over at Maha. It was December in Poland. Maha was from Cambodia and he was swaddled in layers and layers of saffron-colored cloth to stay warm. Like the great pumpkin with the beautific punim, he waited patiently while the un introductions unspooled. Finally, we all heard, please often a offer a warm welcome to the most venerated and revered, the compassionate Buddha spiritual master, <laughs> Pray Maha Gosananda. Maha stood up. He was no more than five feet tall. In his sweet and lilting accent, he said, I will speak from here. <laughs> he took a short pause as everyone turned to see him standing in the audience. When the auditorium was quiet, he spoke. He said, be peaceful, and then sat down. <laughs> He had schlepped halfway around the world to give us two, count, two words. It was absolutely dazzling. His whole family had been brutally murdered. He had to flee his homeland. He suffered and witnessed every kind of human ugliness imaginable. And he gave us the deepest of all teachings. Be peaceful. Because that was what he practiced. That's how he made it through. Despite everything, he was peaceful. So simple and so difficult. Regarding his own country's <coughs> spiritual, ethical, and moral disintegration, he famously taught, Cambodia has suffered deeply. From deep suffering comes deep compassion. 
From deep compassion comes a peaceful heart. From the peaceful heart comes a peaceful person. From a peaceful person comes a peaceful family and community. From peaceful communities come a peaceful nation. From a peaceful nation comes a peaceful world. So, um, one of the um, favorite iconic stories of Mahagosananda when he was in Cambodia before he left the country, right after the killing fields and all the war, <coughs> um, when villages were very isolated because they had planted so many um, <coughs> mines in the fields and on the paths from village to village. And so there, there were an, an just an enormous number of people in attempting to uh, connect with others had lost their um, limbs or had even lost their lives. So there was an incredible amount of fear in the country. And, um, and by himself, in the midst of that terror, and I can't imagine um, the amount of anger and revenge and hatred that must have arisen inside of people from what they had seen. He walked by himself in the beginning on those paths, and he chanted one thing nonstop for months and months, and it was, hatred shall never cease from hatred, only through love shall it end. And he walked <coughs> slowly, and chanted and chanted, and there was such a recognition of what he said in that sense of, it's so bad, I don't have any option but to follow someone who is giving me something like this, like a path. And it feels somewhat miraculous that in all the um, days and days and days that he walked from village to village with people then just following him, that they never ever stepped on a mine. Until they finally came to a refugee camp and then that's where they stopped. But that isn't where he stopped chanting. Apart from the four hours when he slept every night, he was on a wooden crate every day, just chanting the same thing over and over and over. He, he uh, went into dementia. He lived close to me, 
relatively close when I was living in Northampton in a very small temple. Um, uh, I can't remember where it was near, but it's gone out of my mind. But anyway, when, when we uh, were doing different anti-war events or different events, like do you remember there was that... Um, um, I don't know what you call it, when the shoes of people who died in Iraq went oh. from town to town. Yeah? yeah? And so that happened in Amherst, and there were a lot of us who came uh, to honor all the people who had died. And he was there, even though he was somewhat in dementia, but there was something inside him that knew that this is where he wanted to be, and of course there, there were the monks and nuns that were part of the temple that had brought him. And they were, they were, they were drumming, they were just, they were drumming and chanting at that, at, uh, with the shoes. And whenever we had some kind of thing going, they would come and drum and chant. So um, those of us in that area got to ex experience him and his blessings, and um, he came to an international teachers meeting at Spirit Rock, and um, I don't know where his companion was, For an, there were a number of times when his companion wasn't with him, and he'd be wandering around saying, dining room, dining room, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there was like no anxiety, just like this friendliness of, where is the dining room? <laughs> so very, a very beautiful being, anyway. Um, so um, the the um, that incredible orientation to knowing the path of freedom, to the path of peace, to the path of caring and compassion and love, that orientation, but not only the orientation, that incredible effort and dedication that he made, just that chant, non-stop, that chant, like aligning the mind over and over again in an environment where there, you know, where everything had been so destroyed and disrupted, much, not everything of course, much. Just that, that this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. And it feels so beautiful to me and that it's such a deep invitation from our own hearts that the Buddha names that there is a way and that the way is the alignment to what are called the skillful mental qualities and the abandoning of the unwholesome ones, that the whole path could be said to be the cultivation of the beautiful qualities, and he calls them beautiful. Someone said to me, oh, you use that word a lot, but actually he does too. He talks a lot about the beautiful qualities. And the abandoning of the qualities that bring constriction and suffering and ignorance and delusion, including those energies. And that is the path. 
because the conditions for awakening, for our own freedom, and I just want to remind us again when I say that, that we're not talking necessarily even about stream entry or about the first stage of enlightenment. We're talking about the moments that are free of the unskillful qualities. Just a moment when what's in the mind and what I said about Deepama, right? Was that this week or last week? Which <laughs> that 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 it's that it's just the beautiful qualities in the mind. That's a moment of freedom. In fact, a definition of nirvana and of stream entry is the blowing out of greed, hatred, and delusion. And isn't that compelling? Because even when I say it, I feel <coughs> like, really, just that? Like, what about the highest peace, and sometimes the Buddha says it's the highest peace, but more often he talks about awakening and full awakening as the extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's it. And so in understanding that, then it becomes more compelling to understand the importance of the renunciation and the abandoning of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the qualities that um, bring suffering, and I'll read them in a moment. And then, because in those moments, there's no space for the cultivation of the beautiful qualities. So the abandoning in the moments that they are in our consciousness, and then the cultivation and the calling in the beautiful qualities. And so, and we never know when this is going to happen, and it's very easy to have some subtle strategy in your mind of misunderstanding of, well, my moments that are free of greed, hatred, and delusion feel very far away, so I'm just not even going to include that in my heart as a constant invitation. But I think some of you have heard me talk about different stories enough to know that it can just take a minute for the factors of enlightenment to come into place for the mind to jump off or to open. Different people talk about it differently. To, for the mind to be opened without any of the obstructions. Just a second, and you don't know when that's going to happen. And so, in kind of, that's what Mahagosananda was doing. He was calling into being that letting go of what was unwholesome. And so for those of you who, kn who knew to the practice, the seven factors of enlightenment are mindfulness, no big news, we talk about it a lot, right? Investigation, that, that, um, 
a live inquiry into the experience and the characteristics of the experience. And so, for those of you who've been here from last week, towards the end of the week, we talked about those three characteristics, right? That, that as the mind becomes alert and inquiring or curious or alive to the experience, then the three characteristics of life become apparent and they are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and the fact that there isn't a solid entity or I. And so we see how important that is, that inquiry, because in coming close to and becoming intimate with that expression of life in us, then the mind in a moment can jump off from one of those gateways, right? Into releasing from any movement towards, against, or in confusion, just a moment. So through that inquiry, and then we've talked about the combination of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So effort or energy is another one that bringing the energy into the mind. And then so is joy. And all that practice of appreciative joy is bringing that kind of delight into the mind so it can relax and open. And then comes calm, where the mind becomes settled. And then concentration, where we sustain our connection. So it's just like, maybe you shouldn't say this in a Dharma talk, like touching your honey. Or, and it's like, we sustain that connection pretty good, often, right? Pretty well, like touching, and we're there, present touching and touching, or maybe even touching ourselves or touching our pets. Or um, when my mom was, um, when she was in her dying process and I stroked her, I was totally concentrated, just totally present. So that sustaining the connection with the experience and then all those factors um, coming together in equanimity, this balanced, non-reactive mind. And that can happen just like that and the mind can open. So that's why the refuges are so important as a foundation because they keep bringing us close to the aliveness of that capacity. And why now, as I keep saying to you, I'm just like really digging the refuges, that um, now I understand it isn't just a rite and a ritual, but like when you're driving and you're like, where am I? And it's like hit Google Maps. Oh, there I am. You know, that's the refuges. Oh, this is where I am, right? So. so that is to say that we are 
cultivating the wholesome and abandon, uh, cultivating the skillful and abandoning the unskillful. Um, Booker reminded me that if you have been associated with the Christian church or Catholic church, wholesome has many connotations <laughs> that aren't that great. As a Jew, I never heard of it before I came to <laughs> Buddhism. So, <laughs> so uh, skillful, the skillful energies. So then, um, here Mahagosananda is inviting us to peace and to be peaceful. Why is it so difficult? You know, and we 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 don't have to go further than our own minds to acknowledge how difficult it is. And so I wanted to give a little bit of an overview, especially for those people who have just come into the retreat. As human beings, we're born with the capacity to love, to honor and to respect, to awaken. And we're also born with the capacity to forget, to move into anger, hatred, revenge, boredom, anxiety, restlessness, loth, torpor, avarice, uh, lying, revenge, and so on. And that, that's reality, right? We, we live that. That's what we're living, right? And so just as a reminder again, of how it is that we end up in unskillful mind states. And that is because when there's ignorance, which is the mind deeply confused about reality and how things are, in that confusion, along with that is the psychological experience of loneliness, of a sense of, even if we have tons of friends, and even if we have a partner, or even if we have kids and a family, there's some sense of a deep loneliness, or a, uh, also a psychological experience of not belonging, even in here, moments of not belonging. Or I, I had this experience a couple of years ago when I was walking down Corbett Avenue to my house in San Francisco and I was like, what is that feeling? What am I feeling? I'm like, oh my God, that's loneliness. It was so pervasive and deep and, and like just extraordinarily uncomfortable. I'm like, wow, this is what it is to be lonely, that kind of cut-offness and disconnection. So I got home and I'm like, okay, let me call up someone. And I went through all my contacts and no one felt like a friend in that mind state. It was such a great teaching. It was beautiful. I mean, I bowed down to it. So that, when you, when the mind can't perceive where the connection is and where the friendship is. 
because that's one of the definitions of ignorance. And when it, that the classic definition is that when the axle doesn't fit into the center of the wheel, so nothing feels like it fits. Whatever you're doing, at your work, what you're eating, whatever you're doing, even sometimes your clothes, like nothing feels like it really fits. So everything feels like not fitting, which is really not a, a great experience. Um, and then, um, and then out of this rootlessness of, no, of non-connection comes the misunderstanding of moving towards whatever is pleasant and away from what's unpleasant because pleasant experiences feel like the answer to that dislocation. And it's true that pleasant experiences give us a temporary feeling of ease and happiness. There is a kind of happiness to, to pleasurable experiences. So it makes sense. It makes sense that should happen and away from anything that is unpleasant. And then out of that movement, and maybe I'll give a Dharma talk on dependent, de, dependent origination, because that gives you the details of how an I, a sense of identity, is built out of this movement. And so I just want to name that in the, in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings, because Really, what was happening was that identity built out of wanting the control, right? To make decisions, even in the face of truth, but not being able to see it because you want something so much, and this is, and you are deeply scared of losing it because if you lose it, you go right back to that dislocation and sense of emptiness. So that sense of control and obsession, it was obsessive, what was going on in those hearings. That's ignorance. And it lives in all of us. I do not want to just locate it out there. We are all living in ignorance. And we all, according to our locations, have built up the sense of identity, which we defend and control around. In, in, in the places where we're privileged. The blessing of targeting is that uh, we have more opportunity to inquire into that. Because it's uncomfortable and we're not getting what we want, so it can turn into the practice for liberation, but not necessarily if you don't have a liberation practice. So anyway, that's going off a little bit. So just to say then, in that space of ignorance, when, for example, a beautiful person of the gender you desire 
walks into your visual field, for example, you're not seeing that person as they truly are. Because when ignorance is operating, there's always in the initial contact with the, with the visual object, there's already distortion. And out of that distortion is a misperception. And out of that misperception comes wrong action. So, the, I, I, because I'm aversive, it's even better to use the other side of when there's ignorance, when there's ignorance, and um, let me see, and, um, and when I see those, when, when there's ignorance, and when I see those white senators in the Senate, I'm already, because I'm pissed off, I, as soon as I see them, it's so together, it comes anger. There's this misperception, misunderstanding, and wrong thinking. And that's, that's when ignorance is operating. There's no be peaceful. There's like hate. No, not really, but I'm exaggerating because I don't hate them. So, <laughs> so I just, so I want to say whenever, whenever there is an energy that isn't kind, faithful, mindful, concentrated, compassionate, joyous, any of the factors of enlightenment or the paramis in the mind, but particularly faith and mindfulness, then we know, we comprehend that we're misperceiving and we're building ignorance. And we just build more and more ignorance until we look at a mind like the, um, the minds making decisions around immigration and we see so much with the, we see the Grand Canyon of projection, right? where there is so much projection onto other people that it is impossible to see who they are. And we experience that in our community. We have. I mean, I've experienced walking down the road, I think I've shared that over the years, with my ex-wife and in a Gunquit, Maine, and some guy coming up and saying, get out of our town, you bloody... can't remember, dykes or... No, he didn't say dykes, whatever he said. You know, that just impossible to perceive the reality of humanity. And we felt that too. And we felt it often with the people we're most intimate with, right? Moments of like, you are my enemy. Yeah. So one of the characteristics of ignorance is that it all, because there's no mindfulness and no capacity to hold the experience, it always gets projected out. And that's why what you're perceiving is distorted, because the energy is moved out. That, that's, that fear uh, um, or... or um, um, 
wanting, obsession, whatever it is, it's always projected out onto the object. And that's why we feel we don't have any control. When ignorance is operating, we feel we don't have any control because the energy moves to the object. And so it's not about our relationship, it's about the object. And then we have to defend ourselves, right? Yeah. Or it could, the other way is obsession. Then it's the wanting, it could be defending ourselves or out of that rootlessness, it could be the wanting and the compulsion to have to fill up. I, maybe some of you who've lived in other cultures have experienced this. Um, that other cultures aren't so individualized and separated as we are. And so there isn't that dynamic of ignorance of, of um, um, how oppression has individualized us isn't so intense. And so actually the ignorance dynamic doesn't work so intensely. So even though, you know, even though in... Um, South Africa, there was apartheid within communities. It there, there was not so much. There was there was an easier. It was easier. I just say that it was easier. And I remember when I was, um, I lived in Greece for a while, and I went up to some mountain villages where hardly people went. And as soon as I turned up, people thought I was there because I'd come to visit them, personally. And everyone in the village invited me into their house for retsina and figs, even though they didn't speak any English, because there was that immediate warmth and sense of hospitality. And I'm not saying that they weren't ignorant, but just that it had been triggered less in less industrialized cultures. In this culture, ignorance gets triggered all the time. It's a, it's a, it's a, we know that. We know that from the way this whole culture is organized, that it's, it keeps on triggering ignorance all the time. Because whenever there isn't the beautiful qualities in the relationship, then ignorance gets triggered. So when people are expressing anger or wrong perception or wrong thought or hatred or envy, which happens a lot, then our own ignorance gets triggered. That's why we feel overwhelmed. Because our ignorance system is getting triggered. And so, when we can name it that way, then we're like, oh, okay, oh, oh, 
abandon the unskillful. My unskillful energies have gotten triggered. Let me cultivate the skillful. Let me go back to that mantra, you know, but whatever the mantra is that you happen to carry inside of you, maybe it isn't Mahagosananda's one. So, um, so, uh, and then the, the, the energy that, the energy that is the first energy that is so beautiful in the wholesome qualities that we call on, is the energy of faith. It's the very beginning, it's the leader of all the wholesome qualities. And um, it's so beautiful because it has the characteristic of trusting and its function is to clarify as a water-clearing gem causes muddy water to become clear or its function is to set forth as one might set forth, to cross a flood or to walk a path. It is manifested as non-fogginess, i.e. the removal of the mind's impurities, or as resolution. Its proximate cause is something to place faith in, or the hearing of the Dharma. It constitutes one of the factors of stream entry. I'm, um, I read a story when I was reading about Thai forest practitioners and the story of a monk who was very, very dedicated to awakening, and he was in the forest by himself, and um, he had uh, he had an infection in his teeth, and it was very painful, and he said to himself, I know this is intense, but that's what came to me, he said to himself, I'd rather awaken than leave my practice in the forest. I'm just going to pull out my teeth uh, so that I can continue to practice. I can't say that I would do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I can say, you know, in when I find myself facing difficulties and finding that I'm thinking a thought more than three times, and so I know that it's not just a thought, but that I'm caught in some way, and that I have to drop the storyline and feel the feelings, right? That's the invitation in the body with mindfulness and loving-kindness, and, um, and then appreciate my loving-kindness and, and wish to meet those feelings. That's the practice we're all doing of the abandoning, right? And I'm doing it, and I'm doing it, and I'm like... Okay, Arena, do you want to awaken? And I can tell you, without any hesitation or an iota of doubt, that my whole being is dedicated to awakening. And that's the bottom line. Do I want to hold on to this 
and support an obstruction to my awakening? Or do I want to awaken? And it feels like it is so profound. If awakening as a word doesn't do it for you, do I want to be free? Do I want to be free? Do I want to live in my unobstructed queer arena expression? <laughs> yes. And it's just enormously helpful, and that's what Mahagosananda was doing. He was saying, more important than anything is the orientation towards freedom, which is what he said. Do I want to be free? Yes. And actually, one of the beauties of one of the gateways of dukkha, right, or suffering, is that when you get right to the late already <laughs> when you get to the bottom of like what feels like the bottom there's only one way you know you there's nothing to lose the problem with privilege is that it thinks that you have something to lose but when you don't have anything anymore there's nothing to lose and so there's more of an open heart towards saying, okay, I'm ready for the Dharma, I'll follow Mahagosananda, and I'll just go to the refugee camp and chant for days and days, which is what they did, thousands every day, just non-stop chanting. That's so beautiful, that dedication. So I want to read it just a couple more before I, um, before I stop. Um, I want to read a couple more of the beautiful qualities. So then there's mindfulness, of course, which mean, which in Pali is sati, which derives from the root meaning to remember. But as a mental factor, it signifies presence of mind or attentiveness to the present. And it has the characteristic of not wobbling and not floating away from the object. And its function is absence of confusion. I love that. That is the antidote to ignorance. It's like mindfulness is the absence of confusion, which is the ma major expression of ignorance. It is or not forgetfulness, like we understand what our past is. That's what not forgetfulness means. And it's manifested as guardianship, or as the state of confronting or knowing clearly reality as it is. I love that. No distortion in perception, just reality as it is. And in that understanding, then we're empowered, because then we perceive immediately, this doesn't help. I want to awaken. Yes. Okay, lineage, I call on you to help me cut that storyline <laughs> so that I can let go of feeding the obstruction. And then I, and then I want to say two more things. So the after mindfulness, this is really interesting. The fourth factor is um, fear of wrongdoing. 
it says that shame, this is in the shame, not shame like I hate myself, but shame as the characteristic of disgust at bodily and verbal misconduct. And that's what we feel when we see it outside, right? That's what, that's what I was feeling when I saw those senators. I was feeling hairy or shame and fear of wrongdoing. The fear of wrongdoing has the characteristic of dread in regard to misconduct. Exactly more, this is shame, I'm reading. Oh, okay. And they both have the, f uh, so, but they have two. They have shame, hiri, and fear of wrongdoing, otapa. O-T-T-A-P-P-A, otapa. And they both have the function of not doing evil and are manifested as shrinking away from evil or, f or from the unskillful. Mm -hmm. It's a bad translation. And their proximate cause is respect for self and respect for others. I want to say that because so many times when we're in the wiring of ignorance, we feel ashamed. And that actually always happens whenever one of the qualities associated with ignorance is triggered. So, did I, I hope I brought it in a moment. I, I didn't, but hang on a moment. I want to go back to the list because I want to read it to those of you who haven't had it before. Okay, so when there's ignorance, there is always the mic. Oh, thank you. I'm building my arm muscle. <laughs> so there is always shamelessness. There isn't that factor or fear of harm or doing wrong. So basically, we're feeling. When we, I'll read them out and then I'll go back. When we are caught in greed, wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, or doubt, and the Buddha also talks about other things like revenge, for example, there is always wrong view, shamelessness, there isn't that fear of doing wrong or fearlessness of wrong, there isn't that and restlessness, which is that the mind can't settle and penetrate into the experience. And we know that, like, when we're suffering, the mind is like, da, 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 da. It can't actually rest on the experience and it can't penetrate into it. So there are all those factors. So some, you know, sometimes it's not only that we're feeling anxious or hatred or envy, it's that we're feeling hatred for ourselves, it, or we're blaming ourselves or shaming ourselves for feeling that. That's because of those, um, that's because of those two factors that aren't there that are protecting us. There isn't otapa and hiri that stop us from turning those energies against ourselves. So it's hardly, I don't know if you've noticed this, have you noticed this, that whenever you're in 
caught in a negative mind state, there's always some sense of blame or shame that, or judgment that's happening. That's because of the lack of those two qualities. So we see how beautiful they are. And, um, and, then, um, and then I'm just going to read a couple more because it's lovely. Non-greed is next, and it has the characteristic of the mind's lack of desire for its object. Oh my God, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that is so beautiful. I want to read it again. Non-greed has the characteristic of the mind's lack of desire for its object. It's non-adherence to the object, like a drop of water on a lotus leaf. Just that connection without any holding or stickiness or grasping. Its function is not to lay hold, and its manifestation is detachment. It should be understood that non-greed is not the mere absence of greed, but the presence of generosity and renunciation together. So lovely. Yes. And then I'm going to read one more, which is non-hatred. Non-hatred has the characteristic of lack of ferocity or of non-opposing. Its function is to remove annoyance or to remove fever and its manifestation is agreeableness. Yes, come to me. <laughs> Non-hatred comprises such positive virtues as loving-kindness, gentleness, amity and friendliness. So we get a taste of just how beautiful the beautiful qualities are and how the qualities and I'm just going to now take a couple of a couple of uh, read some of the qualities that bring hatred I mean that bring suffering just a couple okay a few minutes so hatred well wait conceit Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness and its function is self-exaltation and it's manifested as vain glory and its proximate cause is greed and it should be regarded as madness. Yeah, and conceit is the last to go in the stages of enlightenment. It only goes after uh, the fourth stage. Hatred, the second unwholesome root, comprises all kinds of degrees of aversion, ill will, anger, irritation, annoyance, and animosity. Its characteristic is ferocity. Its function is to spread or burn up its own support, i.e. the mind and body in which it arises. It's manifested as persecuting, and its proximate cause is the ground for annoyance. It's like, so, I, so in summary, I had a really nice story to tell you, but I will stop because tonight we're going to sing instead of meta. So um, I'm going to invite you all to sing some songs together just for fun.
So, um, <laughs> to cultivate the skillful qualities. Beautiful. The beautiful qualities, right, the beautiful qualities. So I want to acknowledge that when there is wrong view, all these energies of conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, and doubt move up as a form of defense against that deep psychological experience of being lost, of not fitting in, of not finding a home. And so no blame, no shame, to know without doubt that these energies can never ever bring any relief to our suffering. And then that through faith in the wholesome qualities, faith in our path, and faith that it's possible to liberate ourselves, through that, that confidence, the muddy waters of the unskillful qualities begin to clarify so that mindfulness comes in and then all the beautiful qualities. But it's always faith first. Even if we don't feel like we're being faithful, it's actually faith leading the way. That turning, every time you come back to mindfulness, it's faith there. Mm -hmm. So, and then that, that knowing that knowing and meeting the experience and in the knowing and meeting of those unskillful qualities, they begin to dissolve. We're taking a log out of their fires. And over time, over time, they burn out. No more. So, okay. Oh yeah, sure. It's a comprehensive manual of the Abhidharma mm -hmm. by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And so let me read this very short poem, and, and I'm not going to read this, uh, a long story. Let me read this short poem to end. This is from Derek Wyatt. I think he's gay. Is he gay? No. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited to the life you imagine for yourself. I'm going to read that again, it's so beautiful. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited to the life you can imagine for yourself. Let's sit for a moment. Mm -hmm.